We thank you that you've given us access because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us, covering us with your forgiveness by your blood. Lord, you paid the price and help us, Lord, to take advantage, grateful advantage of what you have offered to us. Lord, as it were, the whole earth, heaven is, is for the asking as long as it's for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that now that as we turn our attention to your word, that you'll give us uh, the ability to give you our undivided attention, that, Lord, you'll help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask, God, that you help us to love you and to love your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So open your Bibles, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 1 to 32. And we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And it's on page 172 in your pew Bible, if uh, you need that number. And <laughs> Kathy's there, yes. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks back that a drawback of going through Scripture passage by passage on Sunday mornings is that we tend to forget where we are. We don't keep in mind what the people were going through when they heard the sacred word given to them by the prophets or the apostles. Now, we've been officially in Deuteronomy for a long time, as in July of last year. You know, and now we've had a number of things that we've done that's not Deuteronomy over the past months, you know, like the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church and a Christmas series and those kinds of things. And so, who even remembers the very first message that we did in Deuteronomy? Remember the title? No, I didn't either. So I had to go look it up. It's called orientation. So that's what we were a long time ago. But I want to refresh our memory this morning of where Moses and Israel were. It's important to do this now because chapter 11 marks a definite transition point in Moses' sermons. Now, of course, as we know, it makes up the entire book of Deuteronomy. We need to see this in light of what Israel said we're going through and not so much looking back on them with our present understandings. We tend to look at the Lord as an angry God threatening to do a number on Israel if they didn't obey everything. And so we tend to see Moses' warnings as particularly dire. Now, there is some truth to that. You know, the Lord is very animated, as it were, when people are stubbornly rebellious against him, the individuals especially in the covenant community. And those who live as though the Lord is not their king, they proclaim it, but they don't live it. Now, we would refer to them today as like practical atheists. You know, we think about people who claim to know God exists, but when it comes to their day-to-day lives, they don't take him into account, his ways and what he wants. You know, they just go about and do their own thing. But on the other hand, the Lord blesses those who remain loyal to him. And loyalty is spelled this way, isn't it? L-O-V-E. And how did God describe love? Obedience. Brother Greg had done a good job this morning talking about that whole thing. If we love him, what are we going to do? We're going to obey him, keep his commandments. But what was Moses and Israel's reality? Because if we understand where they are, it will shed a lot of light on why Moses' tone appears so dire and why Moses is so forceful in his explanation of the Torah to Israel. And so let me offer three very brief points before we get into the passage for today. First, Moses was getting them ready to enter the land that Yahweh promised to give them. 
And as we know, that land was surrounded by nations who worshipped other gods, many gods around them. There was competition in the unseen world, vying for the spiritual loyalty and affection of Israel. Now, there was another aspect to Israel's reality. And throughout Deuteronomy so far, notice that we haven't gotten into any specific explanation of the Ten Commandments. Now, as we know, this book of Deuteronomy is famous or infamous for many, many laws. And these first 11 chapters that we've been talking about so far didn't really go into any of this. Because Moses is setting up the people. He's dealing with their hearts. And he's teaching the people the Lord's character, how he loves them, how holy he is, and patient and kind and gracious and merciful to his covenant people. And going forward, we're going to see into some depth how Moses seeks to explain the Ten Commandments as he is going to talk about some specific laws and how to extrapolate all of that later on. The third reality is somewhat of a practical matter regarding the way Moses delivered his series of sermons. And a good case can be made that everything Moses said in this book, all 34 chapters, was said in one day. But let me give you just one of many reasons, and I kind of buy into that as well, one of the many reasons why this could very well be the case. In Deuteronomy 31, 10 to 11, it says this, that Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years at the Feast of Sukkot, When all Israel comes together before the Lord, you shall read this law, this book of Deuteronomy, before all Israel in their hearing. Did you hear that? Every seven years, the entire nation was to come together, and they were to hear this book read front to back in one sitting every seven years. Now, you know, it does take a couple hours to read it straight through. Ask me how I know. But it is possible to do. And throughout much of what Moses spoke so far in our study and what we will experience later on as we go through the rest of Deuteronomy, the stuff that he says is not unique. See, these sermons are Moses' recollection of what happened in the past. He's a seasoned man. He's 120 years old when he preaches these messages. Now, as such, he repeated himself for emphasis at different places and different times as all good teachers do. And we're going to see some of this today, how he repeated himself. Now, unlike some leaders in our country who seem to have some cognitive impairment, Moses' mind was razor sharp. And as a master teacher, he did a very thorough job of engaging the people with the Torah. And as we know, Torah means teaching, as in teaching God's ways to God's people. As I mentioned, we're going to cover the entire 11th chapter today, Deuteronomy. And so we got a whole lot here. Now, I wrestle with it, and I just couldn't break it up. It just has to be together. So as we do, I want to place emphasis on the first reality I talked about, you know, that there is a vying for affection of Israel amongst the other gods and Yahweh. And it's going to be obvious when we do this. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 1 to 32, we're going to quickly walk through six segments surrounding a repeated theme. And that repeated theme is obedience to the Torah in some way, shape, or form. 32 verses, six times the emphasis is upon obedience to the Torah. Six times Moses zeroes in on obeying it. And so 
I'm going to use what I call the Torah perspective. We're going to see the actual rule here that Moses is telling them, you need to obey the Torah. And then I'm going to give a little summary statement. And so in verses 1 to 7, we have Torah and personal experience. In verses 8 to 12, Torah and the land of promise. In verses 13 to 17, we have what we can call the heart of the chapter, which is Torah's blessing and warning. It's a warning against committing idolatry. Segment four is found in verses 18 to 21, Torah and discipleship. This segment is Torah, the dispossession and possession. This has to do with the battle that lies ahead and how God is going to give them the victory. And then in the last segment, 26 to 32, it's summed up in the title that we've given the message today. It is Torah, the blessing and the curse. So that's kind of where we're going today. And again, my prayer is that you stay with me and hopefully I can give this to you in a way that uh, keeps your attention. So let's turn to chapter 11, Deuteronomy verses 1 to 7. Torah and personal experience. And the Torah perspective here is found in the very first verse. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and not the gods of the nations around you and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always, not those of the gods of the nations. Again, let's keep in mind that when Israel goes into the land and dispossesses the nations, they will be surrounded by the various nations along with their gods vying for the attention and the affection of Israel. Moses emphasizes to them, love Yahweh. Do not love the gods of the nations. That's his emphasis here. Now, there's something else we need to see. It's that word, therefore. And so a good rule of Bible study is, whenever we see the word, therefore, we got to find out what it's there for. Yes. And so that means we need to back up a couple of verses in chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. Moses said, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. Hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now it's as if Moses is telling the people, Israel, why should you love Yahweh and not the gods of the nations? Look how good he's been to you as a faithful husband. Israel, don't commit spiritual adultery. Now in verse 2, I want to point out something here extremely important as to whom Moses is actually speaking to. He is addressing those with a personal experience regarding Yahweh. It's the elders he's talking to, not the kids. Moses addresses a more seasoned in the nation, and he basically says, "Hey." Older folks, can you identify with that? Listen up, consider, take to heart what you've learned. In other words, Moses is telling the people, what you have personally witnessed, make these things an integral part of your life. Always keep these truths upon your heart. In the next several verses, Moses is going to mention three truths of God's interaction with them. And the first, of course, is the mighty acts that he performed when he delivered them from Egypt. And he delivered them from their gods as well. And the second thing Moses mentioned was simply in passing. What he did for you in the wilderness. And both, it was the chastisement and the provision in the wilderness for those 40 years. 
Now, if we could go back in time, put the sandals on, and go back there, what would come to your mind? As Moses says, remember what the Lord your God did to you. You know, I can think of several things, like manna, water from the rock. And I can also think of fiery serpents that came and bit the people. Why did the Lord allow that to happen? It was because the people were vigorously complaining about their provisions that the Lord had given them. And many people were bitten by these serpents, and they died. And if you know the story, it's where the Lord heard the confession and the repentance of the people, and God told Moses, make a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole, lift it up, and all who will look at that bronze serpent will look and they will live. What an amazing display of grace and mercy. It's that very story in Israel's history that the Lord Jesus recounts in Nicodemus. He said in John 3, 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And these verses set up that famous statement that we all know. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And now Moses gets specific about another episode in the history. And this involves two rebels named Dathan and Ibrahim. And number 16, they led a rebellion of 250 men of influence against Moses, against God's appointed leader. And in riveting detail, the story tells about the punishment that God levied on the leaders and their households. The ground literally opened up. And all the members of their households, of these rebels, was swallowed up by the land, and it was covered over. Every member of the family, all of their possessions, were buried, literally, alive. It's kind of like the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army was covered over by the the waters. Only this time, it was on, on dry ground. And reading the details of this story makes one stand trembling at the Lord's swift judgment on these rebels. And no wonder Israel freaked out and they fled at their cry saying, lest the earth swallow us up too. We don't want to be around here. Kind of scared them a little bit. I think I would be afraid too. But the bottom line here is that the Lord's people were never to forget the relationship they had with Yahweh and how Yahweh dealt with them, both in times of plenty and in times of rebellion, in times of grace, and all points in between. This was important. When the nation would settle down, then the younger generation would be looking to them for leadership and guidance, and also to give them a godly legacy. And for us at Grace United, we have elders here as well. It's we who are seasoned in the ways of the Lord. We are to remember his ways and pass them on to the next generation whether it be our kids, our grandkids, or even those who are part of our family here at Grace United, the younger generation. And so if you have lived experience in the ways of the Lord, let me challenge you and encourage you to pass it on. Later in the message, we're going to see some practical ways of how to make this happen. And so in verses 8 to 12, we find the next segment, Torah and the land of promise. And here's the Torah perspective in this segment is found in verses 8 and 9. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you this day, that you may be strong 
and go in and take possession of the land that you're going over to possess, that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. In this segment, Moses gives two things, and he reminds Israel of the promise he made to Abraham and his descendants for the land and therefore guarantee their victory to have them go in and take that land. Second, he told them that there was no comparison between Egypt, the land of Egypt, and the land that Yahweh was going to give them. See, in Egypt, the enslaved Israelites had to bring water to the crops. They had to irrigate it so that the crops would grow and they would eat. But in the land of promise, Yahweh himself would bring water to the land because the Lord cares for it. His eyes are always on it. Abundant blessings for enjoyment of all of God's people. But lest we skip over this too quickly, the Lord's blessings are for those who are loyal to him. Again, not perfect, but loyal to him. It is a person-to-person relationship after all, right? The greatest being in the universe, the greatest person, wants to have a relationship with us as human persons. The Lord basically says, be loyal to me, and you will take possession of the land, and you will live long in it. In verses 13 to 17, we see the heart of this chapter, the Torah's blessing and warning, specifically the warning against idolatry. Now, in verse 13, we see the Torah perspective. He says, you are to obey my commandments that I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. The Lord promises to bless Israel as they show their love and their loyalty to the suzerain, the king, through obedience to the Torah. The conditional promise is simply this. If you serve Yahweh, he will keep the water faucet of the promised land turned on. And as a result, you're going to have a plenty to eat. You will always have enough also to give the joy-filled sacrifices that the Lord is going to require of you. And what loyal Israelite would not want to give the Lord? Joy-filled sacrifices while rejoicing because his belly is full. But in verse 16, we have the warning. Don't be deceived. Don't let your heart lie to you. Now, if we were there hearing Moses say these words, we might be tempted to think, deceived about what? How can we be deceived? Well, in Deuteronomy 8, a couple chapters back, we hear again Moses warning Israel about the dangers of prosperity and the pride can go along with it, where the Lord set everything up and provided for them and Israel would be tempted and often did turn their back on the Lord. Now, in verse 17, we see Moses giving the consequences for Israel's self-satisfied deception when they would turn their back on Yahweh and they would kind of explore the lay of the land, so to speak, and say, you know, what else is out there? What other gods can give me what I desire? Should that happen, the Lord says, what he's going to do with that, he's going to turn the waterworks off to the promised land and everything will completely dry up. There will be no food no provisions, drought for both man and beast, and the tragic consequence will be death. Now, one learned guy gives this insight. He says, many of the gods of the nations that they worshipped were fertility deities, the gods of grain, the gods of oil, the gods of rain, and they would worship these gods. Unless Israel was extremely careful, 
their pagan neighbors could easily entice them to worship them instead of Yahweh. Transfer their trust to these gods instead of keep it with Yahweh. And it would be ironic, this author goes on to say, that Israel's attempt to worship the Canaanite gods, God would close off of rain and withhold that rain. Now, of course, a valuable lesson for all of God's people here. Why go through all the trouble of failing to trust the Lord, seeking to get one's needs met by other gods when the pagan gods can't do anything? Let's keep our eyes focused on the Lord. And this includes a very powerful rival God in our culture, and that God is mammon or riches. And now that many in our country are on the other side of the Rona, or now even some are still under that threat, and the meme goes something like this, get the jab or lose the job. And as Christians, we take seriously COVID-19 and all the implications that surround that. And some have refused to go along with the mandates because in their mind, they're convinced that getting the jab means they are sinning against the Lord. And some of these people have paid the price. They've lost their jobs. And some Christians, though, they've gotten the jab because for them, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Their conscience is not bothered by it. But far too many people, far too many Christians out of fear say, I've got to have the jab because I've got to keep my job. If I don't, I'm going to lose the mammon. I'm going to lose, you know, my source of income. And so out of fear, they do this. They take the shot because their idea basically is this. If I don't get it, who is going to provide for me and my family? Well, what's the answer to that question? God will provide, won't he? See, we have to remember that regardless of where we are, regardless of the future pandemics or whatever, we have a God who provides for our needs. Am I right about that? We have to remember that the Lord has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and power and self-control. So we must look to the Lord for him to meet our needs, regardless of what goes on in our culture. But I bring this up only to illustrate the power of the rival God in our culture, which was alive and, and well in Jesus' day. Remember how he said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot. It's impossible to serve God and money at the same time. You can't do it. And the bottom line here is really one of ultimate trust. Which master will you and I, as followers of Jesus, serve in our culture? Will it be the Lord or will it be mammon? And so in segment four, verses 18 to 21, we now have Torah and discipleship. Moses said, in essence, this is the key to leaving a legacy in Israel and also in our, in our world as well. And here's a Torah perspective. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you are walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. Now, where have we seen these words before? 
It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. And here's the example of, of Moses repeating himself for emphasis. In this passage in Deuteronomy 6, Israel was to pledge allegiance to the Lord, as he said in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord only. In their daily pledge to Yahweh, godly dads and moms were not content with a private religion where they would just say, hey, it's just Yahweh and me. No, they were to teach the words of the Lord applied through their lived experience to their built-in disciples. And who are they? Their sons and their daughters. Primarily, dad was to install the word of God into his heart. But how does one do that? And I like a couple of these contemporary English versions. Memorize these laws. Memorize these laws. Let me say it again. Memorize these laws. Think about them. There's another version that includes the idea of cherishing God's word. That sort of sounds like scripture memory meditation, doesn't it? Besides the very practical installation of God's word on the hearts of parents through meditation, by an act of their will, parents combine the Lord's word and their lived experience. And now armed with this, what are they to do? They are to talk about the Lord's word all the way through the day to their sons and daughters. And like Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, parents, primarily the dad, is to make the first move and lead spiritual conversations in their homes, talking about the Lord's word all day long. And now cherishing and meditating on God's word, Moses said, brings with it a practical benefit. God's people know what he wants from them, and they put his word into practice. And what is the result? Living with the blessing of the Lord upon them. And for Israel, it was living a long time in the land. But for us, we can live the Lord's spiritual blessings as well. But now, if you will, turn with me to Psalm 119. And I want to show you some practical benefits from the Old Testament about the value of having God's word on our hearts. Psalm 119, 97 through 102. And by the way, practically every verse in Psalm 119 is about the word of God. It's an amazing chapter of scripture. And here's how it starts out. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law, your Torah. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Isn't that great, students? For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, young folks, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Now in verses 22 to 25, we have another segment. Torah, dispossession, and possession. And here's a Torah perspective, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22. He says, be careful to do all this command that I command you, to love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and hold fast to him. Once again, obedience to the Torah, rooted in one's love for Yahweh, will result in God's blessings. And if for Israel, the blessings are a promise of 100% guarantee, a successful completion of taking the land that God had promised to give them. They were to drive out those seven nations who were spiritual squatters 
on Yahweh's sacred land. The Lord promised to go before them and even to perform a little bit of psychological warfare and give a terror in the enemy's minds so they wouldn't be able to combat Israel. And I think about in the book of Joshua, when they went to Jericho, they were scared to death of Israel. And as for us, as the Lord's people living in the new covenant, we have the awesome privilege of participating and living out and completing the task the Lord has for us. But what is that task? It's cooperating with the Lord that we might become just like Jesus when it's all said and done. And to hear him say on evaluation day, well done, good and faithful servants. You want to hear that on that day? But pastor, you might be thinking, how can you be so sure? How can we hear those words? Paul to the Philippians of his confidence that the Lord finishes what he starts. And here's what he said in Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. But let's not forget the conditional part of this because we have a responsibility to play in this as well. A little later on in Philippians, Paul gave them their part to play and gave us our part to play as well in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. And he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your salvation, exercise your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. To exercise our salvation simply means that we make our followership of Jesus visible to everyone. We make it obvious that we are his. We don't keep it to ourselves by the way that we live our lives, by the things we talk about. People will know that we're his followers. And the last segment covers verses 26 to 32. Torah, the blessing and the curse. The Torah perspective is found in verses 26 to 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Again, idolatry is what God hates. He hates it. I'm just going to mention this in passing because a little later on in in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to see how they actually acted this out. Part of Israel was on one mountaintop and the other uh, group of people, the Israelites, were on the other side. They They were volleying back and forth verbally the different blessings and the cursings. They really had a genuine mountaintop experience. And then in verses 31 and 32, we hear Moses give some final instructions. Cross over the Jordan. Take possession of the land the Lord is giving you as a gift. Settle down in the land and live loyally to Yahweh. And so, my dear friends, did you get the point here? We did a whirlwind tour focused on the six times in these 32 verses of the theme. And what's that theme? Obedience to the Torah of God. The king of the universe, the ultimate being, desires to have a relationship with fallen, sinful human beings. And they are often prone, we are often prone to wander from his ways, aren't we? And that's grace as he comes to us. He comes to people full of self-will, fully committed to doing their own thing. And God basically says, come to me. 
Don't you think you've tried to live life on your own to your own hurt? Come and be satisfied in me. I know best how to make your life go. See, God knows all things, doesn't he? Including the best way to live. But we so often fail to believe that. We refuse to believe that. Or sometimes we pay lip service, don't we? But we still intend on the inside to go our own way. But sometimes it takes a tragedy or a crisis in our lives to get our attention. And I think right now, the horror that's going on in Ukraine and and Russia, I think of the threat of China trying to invade Taiwan, or at least that's what they want to do. And the totalitarian regimes around the world, we think about Iran. How many people are turning to the Lord this day because God is getting their attention through the horrors that are going on, that they're experiencing? You know, it's really beyond me how the absolutely perfect God of the universe would take such notice of us. You ever thought about that? Or we just kind of take it for granted. See, we who continually insist on our own way and so often to our own destruction. We were born this way, though. We were steeped in sin. And we're all in desperate need of salvation. But amazingly, in the pain and suffering ultimately caused by sin, the Lord of the universe is working his plan. Sin will not thwart his ultimate accomplishment of the plan. He will be glorified in every aspect when it's all said and done. And every person who's been taken from the domain of darkness and comes into the kingdom, the kingdom of God's dear son, is being changed from glory into glory. An amazing thought. And again, that we might become like Jesus. And painfully, slowly, but surely, God works, doesn't he? See, the issue of humanity and wholehearted obedience to the ways of the Lord can be captured perfectly as we look at Israel. See, we can look at it like this. The Lord took Israel out of Egypt in a moment, but it took a lifetime to get Egypt out of Israel. And the same with us. Those who have come to Christ, having responded to his grace, we struggle. We too are kind of like Israel. God has taken us, our hearts, and taken our hearts from the dark to the light. But it takes the rest of our days to get the darkness out of our heart, doesn't it? And when the pain and suffering comes, and we fail miserably again, and when we stumble and we fall and we get back up and repeat the process, we have a tendency to focus on ourselves, on our failures, on our pains. We're tempted to ask questions. We're tempted to wonder if our followership of Jesus really matters or if he's even paying attention. You know, it's one thing to say in our easy times, you know, Lord, I'm going to stay strong. You know, you throw things at me, whatever you want. But how many of us are like Peter? When the chips are down, how many of us deny the Lord when the times are tough? But the Lord wastes nothing in our lives and all of our failures, all of our self-inflicted wounds, all of our temporary lapses in rebellion. God uses all of it, doesn't he, to mature us. And the longer we follow the Lord, the more we experience his blessings, his provision, and even his chastening hand. And so these kinds of things that we need to share during our open worship time, in your struggles, where is God working in your life? 
It's these experiences that we need to share with those who are less mature than us so we can help them as followers of Jesus to become more like him. And so our takeaway for today is simply this. If the Lord has saved you, he has saved you, warts and all. Amazingly, the Lord has a way of turning the warts and the scars and the difficult times into emblems of his grace. We who are seasoned in our walk with the Lord, regardless of how together we think or how untogether we have it, we are prime candidates, aren't we, to help those who are less mature and just getting started in their walk with the Lord. And what's that called? It's making disciples of Jesus. In our times of greatest suffering, often comes the greatest and most powerful testimonies of God's grace and mercy. Isn't that right? And the bottom line for all of us who know the Lord is that faith is historical. Historical. Because we live in a fallen world, there will be pain. No one's exempt. True? It always involves pain and suffering. And the process goes like this in our followership of, of the Lord. In Psalm 50, 14 and 15, God tells his faithful people, offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform the vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Here's how it works. As followers of the Lord, we draw close to the Lord through sacrifices of thanksgiving. And all well and good, it's, it's wonderful we're close to the Lord. But then what happens? By God's sovereignty, hard times come into our lives. But what to do about that? God says, here's the answer. Call upon me. Draw close to me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. So what do we do? We pray. And then what does the Lord do in response? I will deliver you. What is our response for his deliverance? You shall glorify me. And the cycle repeats over and over again in our lives. We draw close to him. Trouble comes. We cry out to him. He delivers us and we glorify him over and over again. And every time that cycle takes place, profound markers of what I call historical faith are etched in our hearts. It's these proven markers over time which builds an ever-increasing confidence that God is faithful. See, we can read about God being faithful, but when we go through these things, what do we know in our personal experience now? Our God is faithful. And many have heard the song called, He's Been Faithful, written by Carol Simbola. She's a wife of the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, and she leads their choir. She wrote this song, He's Been Faithful, out of her own pain, of her own experience. She had a double whammy. She had cancer, and then she also had a daughter who went far away from the Lord at the same time. And she reacted in the same way that so many of us do at some point in our seasons of grief and pain, questioning the Lord, perhaps, certainly feeling pain at various levels, and in her season of, of grief and season of pain, the Lord came to Carol and met her right where she was. And out of her pain and suffering, she wrote this song. And through this song, millions have been ministered to because of her pain. And this song is a reflection of Carol Symbola's historic faith. And, and the lyrics go like this. In my moments of fear, through every pain, every tear, there's a God who's been faithful. 
to me. When my strength was all gone, when my heart had no song, still in love he's proved faithful to me. Every word he's promised is true. What I thought was impossible, I've seen my God do. He's been faithful, faithful to me. Looking back, his love and mercy I see. Though in my heart I have questioned and failed to believe, he is, he's been faithful, faithful to me. When my heart looked away, the times I could not pray, still my God was faithful to me. The days are spent so selfishly, reaching out for what pleased me. Even then, God was faithful to me. Every time I come back to him, he is waiting with open arms. And I see once again, he's been faithful, faithful to me. Looking back, his love and mercy I see, though in my heart I have questioned and even failed to believe, yet he's been faithful, faithful to me. So what episodes mark your historical faith? Reflect on them. Share with them. Because our God is faithful. And may we realize that our God who was faithful in the past is the God who is faithful in the now, will be faithful in the future. Regardless of our present and our future circumstances, he has been and is and will be faithful. Let's pray. Father, it's been a very quick tour through chapter 11. But Lord, you have been faithful all along. Lord, your covenant is everlasting to your people. And Lord, you discipline your people and you train us to be that we might be holy like yourself. Thank you again, Lord Jesus, for making it all possible. And Lord, now I pray that you would help us to be thinking, help us to be reflecting, help us to really understand, maybe for the first time, Lord, that the, the pains, the, the trials, the situations in the past have proved that we can trust you. And we trust you back then, we trust you now, and we can trust you in the future. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your everlasting promises to us. And now, Father, I pray that you'd help us in our couple of, um, couple more times of our, um, of our, of our worship, our giving, and, and also our singing. I pray, Lord, that, that we'll be able to do these things as an act of worship because you are so worthy and you so alone deserve it. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name.